Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here on the U105 phone-in. Now, I want to speak to Dr. Aaron Edwards, who's uh, written a few books about this part of the world over the last uh, number of years. Aaron, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Uh, thanks for joining us on the programme. As a historian, you're putting the spotlight once again on unionism and you've described, or the title describes, A People Under Siege, uh, examining uh, unionism from partition to Brexit and beyond. And one of the, the pointers that I notice about the book is that the book challenges the assumptions that the Stormont period was primarily about discrimination against Catholics. Um there's, this phrase is often used, uh, Aaron, rewriting history. Uh, surely you're rewriting history if you're suggesting that the Stormont period wasn't primarily about discrimination against Catholics. Well, I mean, you could call me a revisionist. Many people have, Frank. But I think that the, the second part, really, of the argument is that um, it was about keeping everyone at bay who posed a challenge to the Stormont regime. Of course, they were engaged in discrimination against Catholics. That's been proven in the historical record. What I'm mer- merely saying is that we need to look beyond just that um, that, that community and, and see that the Unionist government was absolutely paranoid about challenges from within, about those who, who didn't share um, the, uh, the, the worldview of James Craig and, and successive prime ministers. Uh, and wanted to, you know, hitch the the wagon, so to speak, of Northern Ireland more firmly to the United Kingdom. Uh, and uh, I'm thinking mainly here of uh, independent unionists, um, but more importantly, the Northern Ireland Labour Party. So in a historical context, I think we need to broaden the debate a little bit beyond simply our um, one-dimensional view of the past. And do you see it as one-dimensional? Is it is it not accurate to assess the past and suggest we should learn from it and realise that if in the future nationalists or republicans are in power and in the majority in this part of the world, they shouldn't treat uh, Protestants or Unionists the way that Catholics and nationalists were treated by the Unionist government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, this is um, not just something that's unique in Northern Ireland. I'm trying to assess this from the point of view of um, very much an outsider now, but someone who travels, and I see it in different parts of the world where you, you have for many years had um, a, a one-dimensional, and I should say a one-dimensional political culture in a place. Um, once the shoe is on the other foot, then of course there's a tendency for some of those groups that are then then find themselves in positions of authority and power to do, unfortunately, those unkind things and unpalatable things that the other community did to them because, you know, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, it is a divided society in many respects 
And until the Good Friday Agreement, the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and the letter of the Good Friday Agreement are fully implemented, there will continue to be those um, very diversive, sorry, divisive um, views, not only on the past, but on the present and the future. The book also explains how the Unionist Party controlled its supporters by keeping them in a constant cycle of fear, anxiety and insecurity uh, in relation to, I, I suppose, what the intentions might be for, of the, the Irish government. Is, was it all about pointing the finger, those ones down there must not come up here? In many respects, it was. I mean, I'm not denying that they built a very exclusive society, uh, said mono, monocultural, and, and it, you know, if you were disloyal, and that included Protestants uh, who were also left-wing trade unionists or so on, or had other views uh, about the world, then you were excluded. Um, so, so really, what what that meant was um, building a, a worldview where. Um, the only uh, rightful authority to govern was the, the Unionist Party, and that couldn't be challenged, whether that was from inside or from or outside. And they often raised the border bogey uh, as a, um, you know, as a, as a bit of a scarecrow, really, for voters to try and maximise their electoral and political position. And of course, when doing that, they played a very populist card that we would be familiar with today in different parts of the world. Uh, and that led to tragedy. It led to exclusion. It led to discrimination. It led to really um, the outbreak of, of um, you know, 30 years of, of uh, sectarian warfare. So I think that there are consequences to those political choices. And what I'm really trying to look at is the the legacy that the old regime bequeathed people of Northern Ireland and to Union particularly and to say, look, this is not the way to go. Um, you can't be divisive. You have to be inclusive. You have to reach out because you have to look at the past uh, and, and treat it as a warning from history. Absolutely. So I agree with you there. And I would ask the same question to a, an Irish historian about the whole history of the Republic of Ireland. So let me make this clear before I ask this question. But should we be absolutely ashamed of how this part of Ireland was run for the last 100 years? Well, it's not a... Um, it's certainly, you would have to do a real job of work to package it as anything other than, um, you, you know, a tragedy. Uh, and I think that that's what it, what it was ultimately. I certainly under the old unionist government um it was a tragedy that that um uh, the civil rights movement then had to lobby in the streets for for the return of those rights uh for for people who should have had them as a as a matter of course and i think beyond that then it's been a, a history a sorry history of trying to put humpy dumpy back together again and um try to you know encourage uh, the different, you know, the the two communities in the in the main to come together uh, and find a way forward. And uh, yeah, so I would say it's a tragedy. I mean, I don't think we should be totally ashamed. I think that the Good Friday Agreement celebrations we've recently had, 25 years on, I think that that was a momentous occasion when people uh, north and south and right across these islands there was a consensus there that that this was the the positive right thing to do and that um, we were set on a course of reconciliation. I think that we've got lost down a different uh, rabbit hole, unfortunately, in recent years. But I think that that's something that we could certainly point to as not a tragedy, but as something to be celebrated. Um, But unfortunately, yes, we probably should be ashamed as someone who comes from Northern Ireland that it's, uh, you know, the only... 
um, opener in a conversation, regardless of where I find myself in the world, is about why um, you know people can't get on in Northern Ireland. Um, I'd like it to be a different story, but unfortunately that's where we're at. There are many interesting elements within the book, and obviously a hundred years is a long time to have to write about, but you put a spotlight on specific examples of historic moments and tragic moments through through history, including uh, detailing how the IRA targeted and, and killed Unionist politicians Robert Bradford and Edgar Graham. And you include in that a Jim Molyneux's allegation that the IRA colluded with loyalists in the murder of Edgar Edgar Graham. And you highlight assassination attempts on Ian Paisley and, and Peter Robinson. So it's, some of it is some of it is relatively some of it's very recent, but some of it is relatively recent, depending on what age you happen to be when you're reading this book. Sure. And I think that those targeted assassinations, you know, attempted, though they, um, in two occasions, in, in, in terms of Ian Paisley and Peter Robinson, um, you, you know, they were unsuccessful. But I think that what I'm really um, exploring there is the the damage that was done to uh, political confidence within unionism um, because, you know, their leadership were targeted. Now, of course, there would be those who would say that Ian Paisley uh, and many respects brought it upon himself then because of some unkind things that he said. Um, but that's not really the, the argument I'm making. It's the consequences of, of IRA um, uh, violence and, and um, you, you know, the targeting of those politicians. What did that really do for the unionist community? And I think it, it they sank into a, a bit of a great depression in those years because they couldn't see a political way forward. And it wasn't until the end of the 1980s when we started to see some kind of breakthrough there, um, at least um, dialogue opening up. And so the unionist community felt a little bit more confident and less hunkered down. And so um, really I'm looking and trying to assess what you know, what the consequences were of the IRA decisions to, to target, kill or attempt to kill those unionist politicians. There are other examples in the book, but they're the ones, of course, that will resonate most with people because they're the ones that people will have heard of, at least the case of uh, late Robert Bradford and late Edgar Graham. Yeah, so many names would be referred to that we associate with unionism, loyalism, and indeed sectarianism as as well, including people involved in in, in mass murder who came from uh, loyalist backgrounds. And there's, you you clearly spend some time talking about Billy Wright, uh, uh, one of the prime examples, examining in detail uh, how and why he broke away from the the UVF and then the formation of the the LV. I, you talk about uh, Gusty Spence in the book, if people want to uh, update themselves on that. You reveal evidence of the RUC's uh, special branch actually spying on Ian Paisley back in the, in the 1960s. There, there are so many things within it from a historical perspective. But I just wonder, in relation to the title, A People Under Siege, examining unionism from partition to Brexit and beyond. Do, do you sense that unionism is under siege more now than it ever would have been during the Troubles or before? That's a great question, Frank. And I think that almost everyone um, who has some working knowledge of the title of my book would say, well, of course they were. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, under siege from who? And what I'm trying to sort of uh, resolve, I suppose in my own mind as a historian, but, but for others is who exactly do they, do they feel besieged from? But it's a recurrent theme in 
unionist interpretations of history that they are under siege, particularly within loyalism. You know, they've always had that kind of mentality there. Uh, and um, uh, circling the wagons is a way it was put to me by by one political representative. Um, and th- this is recent language, I should say. You know, so I think that the unionism has the potential to be much more confident, uh, much more open and inclusive than it is. But we're finding politically that it's closed down, and it's closed down in recent years for very specific reasons, including, of course, Brexit where there was a, a much more of an acrimonious uh, an adversarial um, dispute or, or heated debate over um, the sorts of consequences that that might have for people. But I think one of the consequences that I identified when I began this book during the pandemic was that people were beginning to pull away from one another, and that's tragic. I mean, rather than uh, in, in um, free and open discussion, they're closing down debate and discussion uh, within even within their own communities and and that's not a good thing uh, and so that idea of being under siege of course is a perpetual cycle and a vicious cycle at that and, uh, and really it's one that must be broken and what I try to do in the, the latter uh, parts of the book is just to explain how I think um, you know unionism could be much more magnanimous and reach out and be more inclusive and more confident and, and really just spell that out because I think that people do need hope when they read a book like this because it's very easy from the title to think that not another book on, on the troubles and about death and destruction, but it's also about hope and about how people might move forward politically. And do, do you write it as a unionist historian? Is that how you see yourself? Well, I, I suppose it, it's been a long time since anyone described me uh, as being uh, s- someone of, of that uh, sort of uh, disposition. I guess I'm more internationalist these days. Uh, you know, of course, I still live in the United Kingdom. Unionism here in Great Britain means where I where I live now and work. It means something very different from, from unionism in Northern Ireland. And really, I'm trying to explain, I suppose, to an audience... Um, you know, in Ireland, across Ireland, but also in Great Britain, you know, why it is that, that it is so peculiar. Um, and I wouldn't describe myself necessarily in that sense of being a loyalist. I mean, I'm, you know, a unionist who believes in the United Kingdom, um, but I'm much more internationalist than my, my outlook these days. So I suppose it's a, it's a book that's about, you know, something that I've left behind and trying to understand why people still feel the way that I may have felt when I lived in Northern Ireland, um, and, you know, was very firmly rooted in that community. Now, I suppose I'm adrift a little bit, but still within the UK and want to try and understand what makes people tick and why it is that they feel the way that they do. Uh, uh, I think as, that's a responsible uh, question, you know, for, for historians to ask. Yeah, because, you know, people will be familiar or may not be with some of the material you've brought us before. You brought us behind the scenes of the, the, the UVF with the, the book Behind the Mask, which was very well re- received. And you now talk about people under siege, uh, unionism uh, being under under siege. I, I just wonder, from your professional perspective, from your from being a historian and a historian who is looking forward do, do you feel a, a, a threat to Northern Ireland at this present moment? Do, do you feel that a united Ireland is much closer than you expected it to be? I suppose in my professional judgment, and I know this is a very live issue, Frank, and my, my view would be that the great danger for unionism now and the end of the union 
um, you know, so to speak, in the context of these discussions about a United Ireland and New Ireland, is more to do with uh, political apathy within those uh, particularly working class unionist communities where um, they just feel disaffected, despondent, all the D words that are always highly negative. And um, and so that's not a really, that's not a positive position for anyone to be in. I think that whatever happens in Ireland or across these islands politically in the future, people must come together, not pull apart. And there is a real, always that um, feeling I get in the back of my mind that we're very good at pulling apart and history shows that. But th- there are great things that the people of these islands could build if, if they just um, you know, manage to, you know, rebuild some or repair repair some of those um relationships um that they may have once had. And so it all is not lost, but certainly um for, for unionism they have a job of work to do at, at the present moment in time because the most audible voices out there are those calling for a, a new dispensation, a united Ireland rather than the United Kingdom. So it'll be interesting to see how they go. Of course, I've no um, real, you know, crystal ball insight there, but I can just put across my my view that um, unless unionists, uh, you know, get out there and start selling the union, then uh, that political apathy will only increase. And okay. who knows where it will lead? Okay, Aaron, really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much indeed, Aaron Edwards, who is the author of A People Under Siege: Examining Unionism from Partition to Brexit and Beyond. Here with us on the U105 phone in next week on U1.